0: First of all, you have to understand that Trump's appearance was long after the Cold War ended. And so for a a period after the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, uh, conservatives uh, lived together but groped a bit for a new formulation. What would be the new fusionism, so to speak, for a new era? You no longer have the anti-communist component because the evil empire that Reagan called the Soviet Union had collapsed.
1: Welcome to Acton Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Noah Gould, Acton's alumni and student programs manager, sits down with Dr. George H. Nash, senior fellow at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
2: Well, welcome everyone. Today, I am talking with uh, Dr. George Nash on the Acton Line podcast. And uh, Dr. Nash, we're so thankful to have you uh, with us today. Good to be with you. So we're going to be talking a bit about um, an essay that you've written for uh, Religion and Liberty, which is one of Acton's uh, publications on conservatism and its current discontents, a survey and a modest proposal. And you've written extensively on this topic, uh, a few uh, books, so this is a shorter treatment but offering a little bit of um, a survey and then a path forward or a potential path forward for conservatism. Uh, But for uh, some listeners who haven't heard uh, or haven't read much of your work, can you give a little bit of an overview of um, fusionism or Reagan era conservatism and what the different coalitions are in that?
0: Yes, I'd be happy to do that. I'm the author of a book called The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America since 1945. And as I've argued in that book, conservatism evolved from several different sources. Uh, briefly speaking, the, there were libertarians and classical liberals who were concerned about the size of government and the attacks on the free economy. Uh, there were traditionalist conservatives like Russell Kirk who was, uh, were worried about the decline of religion and of social institutions that conserved the best in American society and Western civilization. There were cold warriors who were uh, very, very concerned about the Cold War against the Soviet Empire, the communis- communism. All of these uh, three uh, emerged in the decade or so after World War II uh, independently of one another. And they came together under one umbrella that was quite important journalistically, namely William F. Buckley's magazine, National Review, founded in 1955. A little later on, there were two more components to this grand alliance, if you will, that evolved in the decades after World War II. Uh, The uh, neoconservatives who were usually former socialists or left liberals who uh, became disillusioned with liberalism and gravitated toward the conservative camp. Uh, The way of defining them that Irving Kristol, one of their number provided somewhat humorously was to say a neoconservative was a liberal liberal who had been mugged by reality. And finally, uh, in the 70s and 80s particularly, 1970s, 1980s, uh, social conservatism arose or as it was then called the religious right. uh, Worried about what we now call the culture wars, uh, the de-Christianization of of the American public square, uh, the rise of abortion on demand and various other threats uh, that were held to come from secular liberalism or from what secular liberalism permitted to enter the public square. So, what I've just described here very briefly is five different components of what became a coalition that got the name conservatism in the 1950s. Uh, I didn't mention any names in the libertarian wing, I should. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises and Milton Friedman were three of the great luminaries who promoted free market thinking in the 40s. and. Afterward, partly in order to rescue capitalism from the bad rap it had gotten over the Great Depression. And so uh, the libertarians and classical liberals were particularly anxious to restore uh, uh, an era of limited government and of relative freedom of, of uh, entrepreneurship, economic freedom uh, broadly, uh, after the lurch to the left that had occurred in much of the Western world and even in the United States in the 1930s and 40s. Now as they came together from many different points of origin, uh, a question arose which leads to your question you've asked me about something called fusionism. If you look at the libertarians, their highest value was really the liberty of the individual as opposed to a an overweening uh, welfare state or tyrannical state the social conservatives or religious right were particularly interested in maintaining not just a free society although most of them preferred a free society to anything like what the kremlin had in communism but they also wanted a virtuous society that is a society in which Judeo-Christian uh, values could permeate the society and provide the kind of stabilizing underpinning for a society so committed in name to freedom. Now, when you think about it, those values could be intention with one another. and That is indeed what happened in the late 50s and 60s as these five—really at that point three—different um, rivulets started to form into a common river of thinking to use a little bit of a metaphor there. and There were libertarians who argued that liberty was the highest value and that the purpose of government was to protect the free individual and do nothing more, certainly not try to tell the individual how to live morally. And some of the uh, traditionalists argued, well, you can't have a free society without a good society, a moral society. And there developed quite a bit of polemics at National Review on how to reconcile these apparent polar opposites. and It fell to a, a former communist among the conservatives at that point, a man named Frank Meyer, who was really essentially a libertarian for the most part I would say, uh, to come up with a kind of middle ground. He argued that government as government is committed to protecting freedom, but that the free individual should pursue a life of virtue, a life of of the good life, you see. But he did not want the state, the government to coerce anyone on that path. Well, one of his opponents was a very um, militant Catholic brother-in-law of Buckley, a man named Brent Bozell, who argued that the story of how the good society was superseded by the free society was the story he said, of the decline of the West. And so he accused Meyer of advocating a kind of a hodgepodge that he called fusionism, a term that Meyer did not like. But as often happens in political fighting, uh, labels like that stick. And what Meyer was trying to do was to create a kind of a consensus, or as he would really have argued, only articulate what he said was the consensus that had been part of America since its founding both freedom and virtue. Both had their place. And that became, after a good deal of political argument, the de facto conservative consensus. And it taught the libertarians and the Traditionalists at the extreme that they really needed one another. No one wanted to be in a free society that was utterly immoral and anarchic, and no one particularly wanted to be in a, a society so uh, virtuous that an authoritarian regime was enforcing its version of of, of a virtue on everybody. And Meyer argued that to be virtuous, you really need to have the freedom to choose. So that became after a time the de facto middle road for conservatives who argued that you needed both in moderation and each in a sense was a check on the excesses of the other and fusionism then through the buckley era of the 50s 60s and 70s and on into the era of president ronald reagan in the 1980s fusionism became kind of the uh, the uh, lingua franca really the the common vocabulary uh, the the standard position of most conservatives. They sometimes used a different analogy, the three-legged stool. It was called a freedom, uh, social conservatism and anti-communism and a stool doesn't work very well unless all three legs are there. So this was a kind of a way of saying you need a coalition. Each side has something to contribute to the what conservatives desire to bring about, namely a conserving of an America that is free, that is a decent place to live in, and is um, safe from foreign and domestic threat, particularly the threat at that time of worldwide communism. And then a little later, the the disenchanted left-wingers who became neoconservatives appeared on the scene and then the religious right got energized by Supreme Court decisions especially, and so the, the coalition grew. Into five parts, and really Reagan and Buckley were ecumenical figures because they kind of personified each part of those of that coalition, and they gave each faction, each component, a sense of uh, belonging as to the coalition. So that got us up to the um, the era of Reagan and even beyond. And I think probably with that, I should let you ask a follow up question. Yeah, well, I find it interesting that you point out uh, fusionism isn't
2: just kind of this marriage of necessity of the Reagan era, but it's a much deeper idea, uh, maybe fusing this paradox of, of maybe human nature or this yeah. need for both freedom to act and morality to guide our actions. I mean, that's not something that we just see in the Reagan era. That goes back to, you could know, think of the Apostle yes. Paul's writings, has this paradox in, inside it, but then yes. that's a thread throughout uh, conservatism. Um, now, you outline how you know, under the era of Trump and and some of the uh, uh, kind of popular movements that a lot of these different assumptions or uh, compromises are questioned. So in what way have uh, those orthodoxies of what conservatism has been or, or as people have articulated has populism questioned those.
0: Yes, the the Trump phenomenon can be interpreted in many ways, but it really was uh, in intellectual terms a rebellion against uh, the Uh, the the fusionist um, coalition for being ineffectual in achieving what some conservatives wanted to achieve. Uh, Now, uh, let me elaborate a bit on that. The libertarians of course had been best known for wanting to have a more freedom-oriented economy a less regulated economy, uh, a limitation on the power of government to uh, boss the private sector if you will. Uh, the social conservatives wanted uh, of course a a society in which people chose wisely and well and uh, and lived a decent productive and we would say for short virtuous lives. So Trump attacked a lot of things at once. First of all, you have to understand that Trump's appearance was long after the Cold War ended and so for a a period after the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, uh, conservatives uh, lived together but groped a bit for a new formulation. What would be the new fusionism so to speak for a new era? You no longer have the anti-communist component because the evil empire that Reagan called the Soviet Union had collapsed. Now, it was still there in China so communism did not exist totally disappear in the world, as we now know very well. But at that time, it looked like the West had won the Cold War. Now what's going to keep everybody together? And a point I should emphasize here is that during the rise of fusionism, one of the crucial unifying cements, if you will, that kept the the movement together, was the sense that they had a common external enemy in the Soviet Union. So you couldn't go off and be some kind of fanatical libertarian or fanatical traditionalist and and forget that there was a very sobering enemy out there in the the larger world. And so that brought conservatives, I think, a sense that they had to stick together and concentrate on some very essential uh, projects, one of which was to prevent uh, the communization of the world. Now, with that the loss of that there grew up over time a, a growing tendency on the right for some of these co- these groupings to go their own way and uh, maybe succumb I would put it to what I call the sectarian temptation, which is to the impulse to go it alone. You think that you have all the answers and you really don't need to have a lot of allies so since there's no longer an external foe out there and headquartered in Moscow. But Trump came along and he argued that uh, many people in the United States were not being fairly treated and he found that population group especially in some key states that helped him win the election in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio. Uh, where forgotten Americans, as uh, he thought and argued, were being left behind by a an economy that had grown under libertarian influence to be altogether too globalist and not attentive enough to the needs of uh, rural and small town America and places that had maybe factory towns and then the factory moved to Mexico or somewhere else. And So he argued that uh, that you needed more protectionism, you needed more government intervention to help out such people in need. So it became a critique of the libertarian part of the uh, coalition. Secondly, the neoconservatives in, after their their period of of uh, particular importance in the 70s and 80s, uh, some of them became advocates of a of a very assertive American foreign policy uh, in the Middle East, uh, Iraq uh, in particular, and Afghanistan. And so they were accused of being uh, Wilsonian interventionists. You see, wanting to make the whole world safe for democracy and uh, go in and build new nations uh, out of the these ancient civilizations in the Middle East and pursue a kind of a, a utopian crusade. So Trump was opposed to that and he really reflected in many ways a dissident conservative grouping that emerged in the 90s, uh, mainly in the 90s, called the paleoconservatives who were critics of the neoconservatives. And the paleoconservatives were particularly represented in the public sphere by Patrick Buchanan who ran for president in 1992 and 1996 and who argued that uh, we should think more in terms of America first, not so much about trying to transform faraway places. And so the neocons and the libertarians both became uh, objects of criti- criticism from Trump and then from many of his followers. And meanwhile, thirdly, the social conservatives and, and the uh, and the religious right, some of them came to feel that for all of the huffing and puffing that had occurred in the 70s and 80s, all the lip service given to them, that they were losing ground and in particular, the Supreme Court in some of its decisions was normalizing behavior that was antithetical to Christian Judeo-Christian morality, and so they felt many of them that uh, that the conservative community was not really accomplishing much, and it wasn't fighting back hard enough against uh, the, the culture war coming from the left. So every. And and Whereas Trump was portrayed as, if nothing else, a great fighter and so he might call people names and get into Twitter wars with his foes and so forth. But they said, look, he's a fighter and uh, we are going to take a chance on him. So Trump deviates then from the old fusionist consensus in several ways. He's more interested in using tariffs as a weapon and not going along with free market purism if you will. Uh, he certainly wasn't in his personal life what you'd call a social conservative but he promised to appoint people friendly to that viewpoint to the Supreme Court and he kept his promise. So many of them say, well, whatever his faults, Trump did that much good. That's what they would say. And then the neoconservatives are still really marginalized in the Trump world because, uh, as being too much internationalist, Wilsonian, globalists, et cetera, et cetera. And so Trump of course used the expression that that Patrick Buchanan earlier had America first we've got to think of ourselves first and and he particularly was critical of NATO and of European countries that he thought were not paying their fair share toward the common defense under the NATO treaty and so he made quite a, a fuss about that and some of those countries I guess did improve their defense budgets to a certain degree but that trumpian, um, viewpoint was really more representative of, the, of this paleoconservative descent from what had been the conservative mainstream. So now we have all sorts of um, of of factions in motion. Now, when you start a game of pool, you you put all the balls in the middle in a triangle, and then you. Bang! And hit, and they go scattering in every direction. And I sometimes think of Trump when I think of that—that that he had the if, if impact of challenging a lot of, of conventional wisdom of the conservative community existing to that point. And then, uh, so there instead of fusion, there was now much confusion, if I may put it that way. <laughs> and then uh, instead of fusion, there was some fission. And so now, what I think I see happening as a historian of conservatism in modern times, is an attempt by many different groups out there to try to um, reassemble the, uh, the elements that have scattered or maybe go beyond them and set up some new formulations and to create some of them what I would call Trumpism after Trump. Not too many people would say that Trump was a great theoretician of his viewpoint. He was certainly a great promoter and advertiser. He had 85 million people on his Twitter feed before he lost the Twitter account. Uh, So he certainly was uh, one who could make himself heard, but there were many of the more intellectual figures uh, around him or who came to accept him who are now endeavoring, I think, to come up with a more coherent. Um, presentation that will appeal to people who might have been turned off by Trump's personality. So that's where I think we are now and there are some new Quite, quite new elements that we can discuss if you like, but I think I'll close that answer with just that observation. There's a great deal of scattering going around now and attempts being made to find some new, if not fusionism, at least some new uh, modus vivendi or whatever, some new face for conservatism uh, as an intellectually substantive force.
2: During the Cold War, a big part of What brought uh, these different coalitions together was opposition to communism. Do you think that there's any chance that opposition to uh, the communism in China could bring conservatives of different stripes together in the future?
0: I think so. I think there's growing recognition among our foreign policy elites that China poses a very serious challenge to us. (laughs) Economically and militarily, uh, its ideology suggests that it has very hegemonic uh, aspirations. Uh, it. Um Certainly, acting that way in the South Pacific and in Eastern Africa and elsewhere, so and I think many conservatives, including the nationalist populist types now, some of the Trumps, uh, Trumpian uh, folks, uh, are do see China as a threat. And I think the the neocons of, of yore, uh, such as they are now, uh, would recognize that uh, the libertarians. Uh, obviously, have been associated with an ideology of global free trade, but it's not clear that the Chinese are playing fair by that, uh, in the sense that they're accused of extensive uh, industrial espionage, for example, and so. Uh, There are ways that one can critique China without, um, uh, uh, without necessarily uh, adopting protectionism as an overall approach to our economy. But one of the things that, that COVID along with China, um, have made Americans appreciate is our dependence upon China for or overseas places for some very important things like medicines, medical equipment, and uh, particularly computer chips. Uh, Taiwan is, the, I think, the world's biggest manufacturing country for computer chips. Now if there were a war over Taiwan or even worse, a loss of Taiwan to China, this would cause massive disruptions of the world's economy. So, just from a point of national security, I think that that one can justify uh, building up more at home certain key industries or reviving them and not being dependent um, upon uh, China. Now, when Reagan was president, there was a great deal done to promote um, a broadly libertarian um, approach to the economy at lower taxation, lower regulation. Uh, Some of the libertarians at the time were not happy with Reagan. They thought he was spending way too much money and he talked more than he performed in terms of cutting government spending. Uh, But Reagan, it should be noted, did not permit uh, vital industrial technology to be traded into the Soviet bloc. So national security trumped free trade. We didn't have a perfect world of free trade because we have nation states, a world of nation states and empires even and they can conflict with one another and so you don't necessarily want to trade some of your most advanced equipment of, of military uh, usefulness to a, a country like China which could copy it and and so forth so um, so national security has become has come back into prominence now after that, post-Cold War period when it seemed that we were in a unipolar world. What I think I see happening right now uh, in 2022 is that— there is a kind of a an alliance now uh, of Russia, China, and Iran, uh, that uh, and then you have Venezuela and certain other countries that are friendly to those first three. So there is a kind of a, a new Cold War afoot. It doesn't have the ideological aspect quite so much in the sense, so. So so clearly as did the old ideological struggle against the Soviet Union, but there is, I think, a unifying component on that. And of course, the treatment of the Uyghurs by China. Uh, the I mentioned the uh, the industrial um, espionage, and uh, then their very overbearing behavior toward places like South, uh, Australia and, and South Pacific Islands, uh, and pressure against Japan and South Korea, Philippines, and so on. All of that has made. American conservatives of many stripes realize that this has got to be a, a major issue on the agenda. And so I, my, I don't think we're going back to uh, some kind of pure libertarianism if we ever had quite that much pure libertarianism because the, the nature of the geopolitical scene is such that uh, there will probably be some adjustments that have to have to be made. Uh, but I do think that um, there's a general recognition now on the right that uh, China has to be confronted. Now there may be argument as how to do that, especially about whether we uh, remove tariffs or impose tariffs and so forth. But it seems to me now that um, a lot of—in fact, I think a lot of conservatives, particularly of the nationalist populist side, uh, consider China to be the real threat and they're not so eager to force the issue on on the Ukraine front it's almost like they would some of them would see that as a secondary matter uh, Putin versus Ukraine and want to concentrate more on their uh, on the other um, uh, threat coming from Asia
2: so another common thread in a lot of these uh, coalitions or I think really all of them is this idea of American exceptionalism, that America is in some way a a unique project. Uh, So I'm wondering, there are some conservative uh, groups now who would question that idea. So do you think that there is room in kind of conservatism broadly for groups that don't kind of
0: believe in American exceptionalism? Well, they're on the landscape and they circulate in conservative um, media and so forth. So to that extent, they're they're simply as a matter of fact part of the landscape. I find it hard to think that the um, integralists who want a kind of integration of church and state and uh, perhaps moving in a, a direction where the government would really uh, act with considerable authority to uh, to promote a more virtuous society. Uh, I don't see that they have much possibility of doing that in such a uh, a society that we have which not only has some de-Christianizing tendencies but also where those who are Christian, Catholic included, are not really likely to rally to Catholic integralism which is something that really you might say has European roots essentially in the 19th century. It's so far from the American historical experience that I don't see it as having politically uh, a lot of um, potential. As someone said that uh, probably most American Catholics wouldn't even go along with the idea that somehow you're going to unite the church and state with the church. Uh, taking over, uh, you know, the the function of tutelage, tutelize, uh, t- tutoring the state and how to establish uh, the, the Christian moral code as the church institution uh, interprets it, and so forth. So I don't see that as a um, is a, a very likely prospect for the great masses of the American people. However, it is intellectually um, different and it's intriguing to some and it is causing a certain amount of buzz uh, in conservative circles, especially younger conservative circles. And I'm told that many uh, or a number of younger Catholics who have been mortified by a certain Supreme Court decisions uh, in recent years uh, that th- this has some appeal. So that's that's one point. Now the very recent Supreme Court decision on abortion may take some of the the wind out of the sails of the integralists because now you have an institution in our society, the Supreme Court, which may be um, circumscribing some of the, um, the anarchic um, – uh, if you will, tendencies of of uh, you know, pagan secularism, if I may use such verbiage. Now the national conservatives are another element and they are arguing, as I understand it, that the nation-state is a vital institution in this world. It, it long has been and so they argue for various ways to maintain uh, America as a viable nation-state. That has some um, resonance. Uh, But sometimes it seems like they're drawing upon sources far away. And so I think it's very important and I can expand on this a bit later if you like. I think it's very important that conservatives remember that if they're going to call themselves conservatives in America, they have to— speak and vocabulary that makes sense to the great mass of the American people. Uh, it probably doesn't help expand their sphere of influence if they start talking in language of continental European conservatism or of Catholic integralism of a certain era uh, that is not likely to be, um, again, uh, politically very effective. It's just so foreign from the general— a trend of, of of the American experience, so they need to uh, come to grips with and define and uh, in what ways America is exceptional and then defend that. it would seem to me
2: so you're starting to hint at maybe a way forward for uh, maybe a, a realignment of conservatism. Where do you see um, s- some possibilities for realignment or maybe a new coalition or or new uh, alliances?
0: Well, first, I would say that um conservatism has been built over the years if you think about fusionism partly uh, by refugees from the left, people who had been left wing and became conservatism even then. I'm thinking of ex-communists like Whitaker Chambers uh, who became a prominent conservative figure in the 1950s uh, and, and, a, and a, a number of other names of lesser, uh, that are lesser known uh, of that era who had, had flirted with the left or been communist or Trotskyist and so on. And then they they came out of that. So, uh now it seems to me that there is uh, there are what I call dissident liberals out there a prominent name particularly at the moment of leading blogger a podcast or she has a sub tech uh, platform which is very popular Barry Weiss former New York Times uh, editor uh, editorial page person and she's become pr- pretty well known in the last year or so uh, she calls herself a liberal an old-fashioned liberal uh, she's not a social conservative particularly no, uh, but she is spending her time particularly criticizing the illiberal left, the illiberal progressives. Now she sees, as some of these others do, um, two threats: one from the illiberal right, uh, those who would turn to Europe and maybe talk vaguely and about authoritarian projects or what sound like them. Uh, they. Uh, but also uh, authoritarianism, authoritarianism on the illiberal left, wokeism, uh, the, and this cancel culture, which is, seems to be bent on driving out conservative voices out of uh, the public sphere, particularly academe. So I think that the rise of this, of these, of a number of liberals who are still in their minds liberals, but who are opposed to the farther left that is a, a a phenomenon of note and it might lead some of them to move in a more even more conservative direction so you might say potentially a new wave of neoconservatism uh, we'll see and one, if you're a conservative do you, there are certain areas where I think one can cooperate as a conservative with dissident liberals and in particular in defense of civility and a free a free thinking um, culture a culture of freedom of thought on a place that it ought to where it ought to exist without having to work for it, namely uh, colleges and universities so many I think there are alliances building in that area including some a group I might mention called the Academic Freedom Alliance which consists of both liberals and conservatives who've been set up now as an organization to help embattled professors fight the, the kind of intolerance and worse that they're finding uh, on the left inside academia. So that's one thing and if I may mention a second one, um, Noah. Um, It seems to me that this wokeism and cancel culture and uh, transgender uh, discussion and so on is turning some people of socially conservative um, uh, views in minority communities, uh, Hispanics and blacks, turning them away from that kind of uh, post-Christian. Neo pagan, uh, secular uh, left, and so some of those folks are seeming to gravitate now toward the Republican Party, which is an imperfect vehicle of conservatism, but it is the alternative. So I would say that um, there is some some possibility of, of that happening, and I think there are efforts being made. Now, as a kind of pushback against this wave of denigration of America and its symbols and its hero figures, uh, that came in the last two years, in this the 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 destruction of monuments, uh, for example, of Washington and Lincoln and others, and this this tendency now that seems to be omnipresent, to um, term. To reinterpret everything in American history negatively. I just read recently a couple of articles on the um, the way that uh, Monticello is being um, presented by the guides there. People visiting Jefferson's Monticello, and the same thing is happening up the road at Madison's mansion uh, by guides there. And and it's turning. Out, it turns out that the guides are emphasizing the 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 negative features of that world namely the existence of slavery and certainly not to be ignored but to the point it seems that they're not mentioning anything positive or noble uh, that jefferson and madison uh, accomplished and so it seems like every figure of previous high reputation in american history now is getting Reinterpreted, in, in a way that it, it seems uh, excessive and fanatical. And what is happening on the right, uh, in in many places now, is a pushback and much more emphasis on civic education and saying, "Look, America, like every country, has its flaws and it has its failures in the in the record, and that has to be taught by any kind of truthful historical um, study." and um, but that's not the whole story and that there is much that Americans can be proud of and, in terms of what they have stood for among the nations and what they've done among the nations. and I think that that to me is a very encouraging sign that more and more organizations are uh, on the right, are devoting themselves now to civic education for two reasons. One because they sense great civic illiteracy. Lack of knowledge, ignorance of our of our history among the part of of the, the generation Z and the millennials, younger generations. So there's a vacuum to be filled intellectually there. And secondly, uh, they are saying that we we need civic education simply to rebalance the uh, the story here. It's it's gotten far too negative, and uh, and too many of the criticisms are really not. Uh, valid historically, or they need to be greatly qualified. So we we got into a kind of a rut here of turning very disparagingly on our past, or I say we. I'm speaking now uh, more of of um, some people out there in the, in the on the academic and political left, uh, particularly in the wake of our upheavals of the last couple of years. So uh, I think. We've gotten gone too far, and now there is a kind of uh, of uh, return or an attempted return to a more more balanced viewpoint so that the Americans can say, yes, there is much that America has stood for that has been beneficial to us and to millions and millions of people in our society and beyond. So, I think that is a hopeful sign. We'll see how far it goes. Uh, But there are, as I've just enumerated, a, a few examples of what seems to be the possibilities here of moving in a more constructive and balanced direction. Well, that's certainly an
2: uplifting look uh, into the future and a path forward uh, for conservatism. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a, a pleasure to have a
0: discussion with you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you.